Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of your favorite paranormal podcast called Paranormal Exposed. This is the evidence-based podcast that looks into various paranormal occurrences that happen here in the United States. I'm your host, Michelle, and even though I'm a skeptic by nature, I really do want to be a believer. I am both intrigued by the paranormal and really open to the possibilities of what might be out there. So join me every Wednesday as I dive into a different paranormal topic and present to you what is real, what is not real, and what may just be in between. I'll present both the historical facts as well as the paranormal reports, and we will see where the two meet. So join me in exposing the paranormal. This week's episode, I'm going to be doing the state of Arkansas, and I'm actually going to be doing two separate stories in this episode versus the one. And the reason I did this is they're both shorter stories, but very interesting, and I wanted to be able to cover both. So the first story I'm going to get into is located in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and this is the Tilly Willie Bridge. So I really wanted to cover the Tilly Willie Bridge as I felt I wouldn't be doing the paranormal world justice without doing a haunted bridge. And this seemed like the best choice. And who doesn't want to say Tilly Willie over and over again? So before, of course, I get into the haunted reports of the Tilly Willie Bridge, I'm going to get into the brief history on it. So the bridge itself is not actually named Tilly Willie Bridge. It is actually known as the West Fork White River Bridge. But if you're a local or anybody familiar with the bridge, you're going to call it Tilly Willie. And the reason that is, is it's believed that there was a woman named Matilda Wilson Ford. And she lived in Wilson's Hollow till she died in the year 1914. And to get to Wilson's Hollow, you had to cross the Tilly Willie Bridge. So it is believed that it was named after Matilda. Now, though she died in 1914, the bridge actually has no really known record of creation. The only thing we have is stamped in the concrete on the side of the bridge is the year 1928, as well as the name of the company who poured the concrete. Now, the reason I say we don't know the origin of when it was built is there is a stone substructure that was under the bridge that appears to be a lot older than the 1928 date. And there's also some wooden road deck that looks older than that as well. But again, there are no records of when it was created. It could have possibly been hand built by the Ford family so that they could access the town and cross the river. But again, we don't know the exact date it was built. So why it is called the West Fork White River Bridge is because, of course, it goes over the West Fork White River. And it is on Wilson Hollow Road. And while it is called either West Fork White River Bridge or the Tilly Willie Bridge, it actually wasn't built to be used as a bridge. The structure was actually built as the fourth dam in a series of five dams. And what the city did is over a period of about 20 years, they built this series of five dams and they were built along the White River for a few purposes. One was they would experience flooding throughout the year. So this was a way to control flooding. And it also provided water for the growing city of Fayetteville during the time when there wasn't flooding, drought was also quite common. In 1930, the final dam, the next one after the Tilly Willie Bridge, was built and this created Lake Wilson. 
Now this is the general gist of the bridge itself. And now I'm going to get into the reported fatalities that have actually happened on Tilly Willy Bridge. The first one is there was a University of Arkansas student who actually accidentally drove off of the bridge and ended up drowning because they couldn't exit their car. The next story is there was a man who was driving down the road with his wife and his baby. His wife had just fallen asleep and he wanted to make sure she stayed asleep as with a newborn she really wasn't getting a lot of rest. So when the baby started crying in the back seat, he tried to quickly hush the baby so as not to wake his wife up. Though when he turned to take care of the small child, he accidentally veered off of the bridge and drove into the water. All three of the people in the car, including the small baby, died in the crash in the water. The third story is actually quite similar to this last one, and in this, there is a woman who was driving over the bridge, and her two children were in the back seat. In similar circumstances, she was driving, she accidentally drove off the bridge, and drowned her and her two children. Now, you might think this is strange that so many people were driving off this bridge and dying, but I will post a picture on social media so you can see what the Tilly Willy Bridge looks like. But it is very, very narrow, barely wide enough for a car to drive across. Because again, remember, this was to be a dam, not actually a bridge. So we're now going to get into the hauntings and sightings reported on Tilly Willy Bridge. Now, many of these are actually associated with a woman, of course, wearing white. And when you see her, she will be off to the side of the bridge in a field. And a lot of times she likes to be dancing or she'll just kind of be looking like she's enjoying herself. Associated with this is also the sounds of a mother and children screaming. And it is thought to be the mother and the two children who accidentally drove off the bridge and drowned. This mother might be the woman in white. And the kids might be associated with another phenomenon. If you park close to the bridge, your car windows will fog up and you will see small handprints appear on your window. So it could be these children, it could be the mother, it could be the University of Arkansas student, we just don't know. There's also knocking sounds that can be heard on your car, also on the bridge, and sometimes people will even hear a woman's voice, though. They can't make out any words that she might be saying, and they can't really identify where the voice is coming from. Sometimes when you're driving at Tilly Willy Bridge, you will see car headlights coming at you. So, of course, you're not going to drive over this bridge while there's someone coming, as it's a very narrow bridge, only big enough for barely one car. So the people will wait, but the car headlights will just vanish, and there's no car there at all. There's also frequent temperature drops and not just, you know, one or two degrees. People state that there will be up to 20, 30 degree temperature differences in one spot versus another. And all of these things can be associated with the three accidents I stated before. The last account of kind of a paranormal occurrence is a really strange one. And there wasn't a whole lot of information on this but I really had to include it as I've never done a story with a goblin. Yes, a goblin. 
People will see a goblin not on the bridge, but they will actually see this green goblin below the bridge crossing the river. No one has ever gotten a picture of this green goblin, but he is apparently a frequent sighting in the area. Now, of course, that is the information on the bridge itself and the haunted report. So here's where I'm going to get into a little bit of the debunking. So I went through all the newspaper archives of the time, all the way from 1900 up until present day. And there was never actually an accident involving a woman, a man, a college student, or any children at Hilly Willie Bridge. One of the stories state that some of these crashes happened back in the 70s. Some state that they happened in the early 1920s. So no one can even really agree on the time frame it happened. I mean, that's a 50-year discrepancy. And while I went through all the newspaper articles and archives and all that fun stuff, there is no mention of an accident in which these people would have died. And you would think that would be a big story. Also, in the 1970s, there was a family named the Brooks. They lived within a quarter mile of the bridge, and their son was actually a county sheriff at this time. And he had never heard of any of these accidents happening. And you would think the county sheriff would be aware of it. So I'm assuming that due to hearsay from the sheriff and locals and newspaper accounts not finding anything, I would assume that these are just basically urban legends. Again, if you look at any of the stories of any other bridge in any other state, you will hear kind of similar stories and accounts. And now I'm going to give you kind of some of the results of the investigations that people have done at Tilly Willie Bridge. There have been multiple investigations and many people will get orbs caught, though these weren't really good looking orbs. They're more of your dust particle orbs. I have seen some pretty good pictures of orbs, but these were not those. Some voices have also been caught on EVP sessions, but again, I didn't really hear any concrete proof or words that made me think that this could be haunted. And sadly, most sadly to me, is no Green Goblin has been caught on camera, which would be very cool to see. So I kind of debunked with the newspaper articles and things like that, but I'm going to go a little bit further. Now, Tilly Willie Bridge was demolished in 2010, and it was because, first off, it was dangerous. Again, only slightly wider than most cars, no guardrails, and also the area filled with water and easily flooded with significant rain. And the heavy rain would sometimes strand the people who lived on the other side of the bridge and prevented motorists from crossing. So in 2012, a new bridge was reconstructed a half a mile east of the original Tilly Willie Bridge. It cost the city $1.75 million to reconstruct it, but even though it has been rebuilt a half a mile away, people still claim it is haunted with the same hauntings as the old bridge. Now, that's a little strange to me as why would a ghost follow to a new area just because there's a new bridge? Seems kind of strange. Um, you think they'd kind of stick to the same area? Now, the new bridge is kind of nice. It does give access to the Joe Clark Trail, which is the two-mile trail that loops around Lake Wilson. 
you can definitely go and check it out. It is open. The Lake Wilson is open to check out. So maybe I'm wrong and maybe it is haunted and you should check it out. But again, I will post the pictures from what was caught on camera with the orbs and things like that. Now, before I get into the second story of this episode, I wanted to give you all a great podcast recommendation shout out. This podcast is part of the BooPod Network. And what the BooPod Network is, is it's a group of 15 podcasters, including myself, who have gotten together to form this network. And I wanted to recommend one of those podcasters, and this is called the Horror Roulette Podcast. It focuses on true crime as well as other paranormal stories, and it's run by a really great brother and sister duo who have really great chemistry on the podcast, so it makes it really fun to listen to. So here is their trailer. Give it a listen, and don't forget to follow them as well as this podcast on your favorite podcast streaming app. Hello, and welcome to Horror Roulette where you never know what you're going to get. We're your hosts. I'm Em, and that's my brother Nick. Each week we spin the wheel of misfortune to randomly generate an episode topic, which makes our lives miserable, but this podcast listenable. We've covered everything from the Toy Box Killer to Jack and Jill. From Ed Wood to Black Widows, we've suffered through it all. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts, and check us out at HorrorRoulette.com. Listen if you dare. Right now, moving on to our second story in Arkansas, we're moving on to the city of Bentonville, and this is the story of the Peel Mansion. And as a brief disclaimer, I will not be addressing the issues of the Civil War or slavery, as the focus of this story will be on family, the home, and the hauntings. This story starts pretty much in 1853 when Samuel Peel married his wife, Mary Emmeline Berry. She had turned him down many, many times in his marriage proposals, but legend states that during their courtship, Samuel Peel promised Mary that he would build her a home like the one she remembered from her childhood in Alabama. Since he promised her this, she agreed to marry him, though she had to wait quite some time for that dream home, as Samuel ended up joining the Confederate Army during the Civil War. He was eventually promoted to colonel of the Arkansas Infantry, but when he left the war, he was completely broke. So no home for Mary yet. In the year 1865, he became a lawyer and moved his family to Bentonville. He eventually became a prosecutor. Colonel Samuel Peel, he started doing very well for himself and ended up buying the land for his future home in 1872, and his mansion was completed in 1875. So if the legend was true and Mary agreed to marry him only for the home, she was really sticking it out because it took over 20 years for her to get her dream home. And it was not just a home. It was definitely a mansion. The family moved into this 6,000 square foot monster of a house. It was an Italian style brick and stone mansion that had 14 rooms. It was two stories tall. It had a basement and even a three-story tower. The family did not call it the Peel Mansion, of course. They called it the Oaks because their home was surrounded by a bunch of oak trees. Also, the house featured eight separate coal fireplaces with four chimneys. It had 12 and a half foot ceilings. There were stained glass windows throughout. And it even had an elevator, which was not common at all at that time. 
Also on site of the house, there was an ice house, there was a home for the farm superintendent, and there was cottages for farm workers. And you might wonder why they needed farm workers. Well, the Peel Mansion was not just a home. It was actually a working farm that had 180 acres of apple orchards and also a large vegetable garden. And the family really did need a lot of space as they had nine children, three boys and six girls. Though it was a large house, it only actually had four bedrooms. Uh, the rooms are just really large and more based for entertaining. So with only four bedrooms, the parents, of course, had one. The girls all had to share one bedroom and all the boys shared one bedroom, leaving one bedroom open for guests. In 1883, Colonel Samuel Peel was elected to Congress, and he was actually the first native-born Arkansas man to ever be elected to Congress, so that was pretty cool at the time, and he did end up serving for 10 years until 1893. In 1902, Mary Peel ended up passing away, and Samuel Peel then wanted nothing else to do with that house. He wanted to sell it immediately and put it up on the market, but it was taking a while to sell. So a year later, after living in the home for 28 years, Samuel Peel moved out. It took until 1907 to find a new owner, and this was five years. This was probably because, A, it was a really expensive home in Arkansas, so not many people could have afforded it. The new owner was a man named J.J. Jones. And after that, there were various, various owners until 1940, when the new owner named W.L. English bought the property. He had four children, including two twin daughters. He was actually the man who was responsible for adding the gray stucco to the outside of the house, which actually still remains today. Various owners also inhabited the property after W.L. English, though eventually it was left for years deteriorating. The property was sold to who else but Walmart Incorporated in 1991. A year later, in 1992, Walmart actually donated it to the Peel House Foundation, who actually still runs the building today. Several millions of dollars went into restoring the mansion, and they were actually even able to redo rooms with the original wallpaper that they found. And what they did is they would find little pieces behind, like, a uh, baseboard or behind a doorway, things like that. And then they were able to have it matched and custom made so that it was very timepiece in the house. To keep in touch with the wallpaper, they also decorated the house in period pieces, including items that were even originally owned by the Peels themselves. In an attempt to make the home original, they actually tried to remove the stucco to restore the home to its original condition but they were unable to as the brick and stone beneath was pretty fragile and started breaking, so they had to end up leaving the stucco on the house. In 1995, the home was added to the National Register of Historic Places. It is no longer, though, a 180-acre farm. It is now two and a half acres. And what they have done is they've turned it into a museum and botanical gardens, which you can tour. You can tour both the mansion and the gardens, which feature various gardens, including a perennial garden, there's a rose garden, herb, vegetable, cutting garden, apple orchard, and even a children's memorial garden for those who have died. 
The Peel Mansion, in addition to being a museum and things like that, it's also a very popular event venue for weddings and corporate events. There is a building on site that is not connected to the history of the mansion, but it shows what a normal home of that time period would have looked like compared to the Peel Mansion, so it is quite interesting and people do enjoy touring it. Now I'm going to get into the haunted reports associated with the Peel Mansion. The first one, of course, is Mr. Sam Peel himself. Visitors report that on the second floor, they will feel themselves being pinched, and not always on the rear end. It can be other places too, but it's mostly women, of course, reporting being pinched. This leads many to believe that it is a man, and why they feel that it is Sam Peel is some state that they see his apparition. Now, with Sam Peel, I'm a little hesitant to state that he would be a spirit here. Now, he was responsible for building the house, but when he died at the age of 93, he had not been living in the home for quite some time. Remember, he had moved out within a year after his wife's passing. And after his wife died, he wanted absolutely nothing to do with that house. All it did was remind him of her and her death. So I doubt his spirit would want to return here after death unless possibly her spirit is in the home and maybe Sam Peel's spirit wanted to reconnect with her in his afterlife. Also, something to think about is most people who state they've been pinched don't see anything. So maybe someone else is pinching them. Maybe one of those people could be their daughter, Minnie Bell Peel. Many people state that Minnie Bell Peel is the daughter who plays the piano in the parlor when no one is around. Though Minnie Bell Peel did not die as a child, she was actually 89 years old when she died. She was not living on the house and she is buried off site. So I doubt her child spirit would want to return to the home to play the piano. But while it might not be Minnie Bell Peel, maybe it's her mother, Mrs. Peel. And again, maybe she's also the pincher. Now let's talk about Mrs. Peel. She is known to shut the lights off in her bedroom. She will ask women to hold crying babies so as to quiet them. And people even catch glimpses of her as a woman in, of course, white. Now, Mrs. Mary Peel, she did die in the home at the age of 67. And while I can't confirm this next tidbit 100%, at the time it was normal for people to be displayed in the front parlor of their home versus their funeral home for kind of a memorial service. So when this would have been held, it would have been near the piano. So maybe it is Mary Peel playing the piano and of course not her daughter, Minnie Bell. Also, one thing to think about of why her spirit may still be attached to the house is all her children, except for one, were at her side when she passed away, which might make her spirit want to linger with them. And of course, her husband and they were still living in the house uh, for up to a year after she passed, and maybe she couldn't move on after that. Also, one of the upstairs bedrooms, people claim that they can hear crying. And they think that it is one of the Peel children. But it doesn't really make sense as none of the Peel children actually died in the home. They all lived well into adulthood. The only premature death was the eldest son and he didn't die till the age of 38 years old. 
and he wasn't in the home and it wasn't anything sudden. It was just a prolonged illness. Now, while it might not be the Peel children, one of the most common theories is it could be the spirit of a girl named Marjorie English. The story of Marjorie English, you might remember her father put the stucco on the house, W.L. English. This would have been when she was living at the home with her father. Marjorie English was playing tennis when she felt a really bad pain in her side. And it was so bad that the family actually ended up taking her to the local doctor. Now, the doctor thought if she's having a pain in her side, it must be something like appendicitis. But when she came in, he realized it was not on the side where her appendix would be. So he couldn't find anything wrong. He didn't know what was going on. So he ended up just sending her home. But it didn't get any better. The problem was the doctor didn't know that Marjorie was actually a mirror twin. What a mirror twin is, is they have the same characteristics of their sibling, but on opposite sides of their body. So when they face each other, it looks like they are looking into a mirror. Now with some mirror twins, in very rare instances, there is a condition known as situs inversus. And this is when not only physically on the outside the mirror twins are mirrors, but also on the inside. So their organs are actually on opposite sides of the body as they normally are anatomically. So for example, if Marjorie's sister had her heart on the regular side on the left, Marjorie would have her heart on the right. Later on, after a while, after the pain kept getting worse and worse, they found that it was her appendix that had swollen and ruptured, but it was on the opposite side of her body as normal. A surgeon and a nurse arrived at the home and Marjorie was not doing well at this point. So what they did is they made a kind of makeshift surgery place. They took the upstairs bedroom, they pushed two kitchen tables together and used that as a surgery table. When they opened up Marjorie, the infection was apparently so bad, it is claimed that the nurse on site actually fainted. And the surgeon was like, there's no way that this little girl can survive. So he didn't want to carry on and keep making her painful or any of that. So he didn't even close her up. They just kind of put a bandage over the big gaping wound and said, I'm sorry, there's not a chance she'll survive, but we'll just make her comfortable. So a nurse stayed on site caring for her and giving her morphine, things like that. Ten days, Marjorie stayed kind of comatose, but on the tenth day, she actually woke up and asked her father why he was sitting next to her crying. He said he was crying because she was just so, so sick, but she told him not to worry. She wasn't in any pain. She felt absolutely wonderful. But then Marjorie passed away. The nurse came in and pronounced her dead and covered her up with a sheet. But five hours later, the sheet was seen to move. And upon pulling the sheet off, it was found that Marjorie was actually alive. So eventually, for some reason, the doctor thought now all of a sudden Marjorie was fit to be closed. So they went ahead and closed the incision. And for about a year, Marjorie ended up recovering in the downstairs bedroom. But she never really wanted to talk about her experience. And it's said that she didn't because death wasn't a topic to be discussed in those times, and she didn't think people would believe her. But later in life, 
she started reporting her experience. She said that after she had passed away, she felt herself being lifted up and passing through the walls of the house. She was then floating above a beautiful meadow, but the meadow had no color. She wasn't worried, though, because she said she felt at peace and was not afraid. And she saw a white light that she felt beckoning to her. But when she tried to go to the white light, she ran into something that wouldn't let her go any further. She couldn't go around it. So she ended up finally having to go back the way she came and ended up back in her own body. Now, this is why people think that Marjorie English could be the sound of the girl in the upstairs bedroom crying, because this is where the surgery happened. This is where Marjorie died, because while she recovered in the downstairs bedroom, she actually died and was cared for in the upstairs bedroom at first. Eventually, later on in life, Marjorie English wanted to revisit the house with her new husband. The new owners were very gracious and actually did allow Marjorie and her husband in to visit the house. But, of course, they didn't tell her that she had died in the house. They just said, you know, they wanted to see it as she had grown up here as a kid. But when they noticed the room where the surgery had happened was locked, they were a little confused. And the owners claimed they locked it because a little girl haunted the room, so they kept it locked at all times so as not to disturb anyone. Marjorie was floored. She tried to tell them that the spirit of this little girl was her spirit, and part of her spirit was still trapped in the room. I'm sure you can guess how that went. Some woman who you don't know comes into your house and starts claiming that her being alive is still the spirit haunting your house. It's a little much for most people. So they kind of sent her packing. She told her story a few more times, but then in August of 2000, she passed away, and her twin sister actually passed away in 2002. Now, I do want to kind of go through a little bit of a weird way to kind of talk about what happened to Marjorie and kind of prove if it did happen or not. And how I had to do this is I had to go through the archives, the census, genealogy searches, tax records, and I even made contact with the Benton County Archives. So thank you so much, Benton County Archives, because you went above and beyond with your searches, and I really appreciate you taking the time. So Samuel Peel, he was, of course, the first one who had the home, and he sold it to J.J. Jones in 1907. From 1911 to 1918, the tax records changed to a man named W.E. Ammon. From 1919 to 1939, there was the Northwest Arkansas Fruit Company that bought and held the property. So this was a 20-year period. And Northwest Arkansas Fruit Company is also known as the NWA Fruit Company. Then in 1940 to 1950, W.L. English paid taxes on the property. And again, remember, this is the father of Marjorie English. In 1950, a man named L.A. Allen bought the home and maintained the taxes till the late 60s. But here's where it gets interesting. So historians state that the owners were Ammons, Mr. English, and Mr. Allen, as I stated previously. But they state that none of these people actually lived at the house. So why I say this is, remember from 1911 to 1918, W.E. Ammons was the person who owned and paid the tax records. 
Well, Ammons owned the home and the orchard. And what he did is he sold the fruit the first year he was there for $42,000. And this would be over $740,000 today. It was enough profit for many people to become interested. So in 1919, the NWA Fruit Company was founded, and the president of the company, per the corporation books, was none other than W.L. English. So this kind of transpires pretty easily. Ammons owned the house up until the year the NWA Fruit Company was founded, and for 20 years it stayed in the fruit company's name, being run by W.L. English. Now, W.L. English lived in St. Louis, Missouri at the time, working for a railroad company in that city. The vice president was W.E. Ammons, and the treasurer and secretary was a man named A.P. Bolt. Though it seemed as though the home was not lived in during this time by the Ammons family. The Ammons family actually lived in Garland, Arkansas, which is a five-hour drive away. And how I was able to kind of prove this is I went through the records of the Ammons family. In 1916, the birth of their child. In 1918, the death of a child. In 1920, a census record shows that they lived in a rental property there. And in 1924, his wife passed away here, all in Garland, Arkansas, not in Bentonville. So while he paid taxes on the property, it sounds like it was just used for business purposes. Now, let's move on to the next person who stated to have lived here and why Marjorie would have been living here, and that's, of course, W.L. English. Now, William Leslie English, a.k.a. W.L. English, was born in Kansas, and he lived there until the year 1900 before moving to Oklahoma. In 1908, he moved to Illinois, where he married his wife, and in 1910, on March 9th, the twins were born in Oklahoma, and one of those twins was Marjorie. They then went from D.C. to Missouri and worked for the Frisco Railroad in Missouri. There is no record of these people ever, ever living in Arkansas. And this goes from birth records, census records, everything. So while W.L. English's name was on the building, he didn't actually live there. He was just running the NWA Fruit Company. So my guess is that the men owned the property but used it for their business purposes. They might have used the home while in town to house workers and things like that, but they probably never lived here. So I don't know if the account of this girl dying in the home is believable. And if she was recovering and she had been there for some reason, I don't know that they would have kept her there for a year recovering in that house either. There have also been no paranormal investigations, there is no video or picture evidence of the Peel Mansion that I can provide, so we kind of have to go on hearsay of what people are saying. So as far as the Peel Mansion, there is reason to believe that Mrs. Peel might be still haunting the facilities, but I didn't see any reason why anyone else would. But you know, maybe I'm wrong. I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether you think the Peel Mansion is haunted or the Tilly Willie Bridge is haunted or not. Maybe you've had personal experiences. You can share some proof or other facts. I would also love to hear your feedback on this episode and a suggestion you may have for any future episodes, maybe one in your state. 
So make sure you tune in every Wednesday, wherever you tune in. And don't forget to leave a review and follow this podcast so you know as soon as a new episode is ready. You can also follow this podcast on social media for more information on each episode, including the pictures, links, and much, much more. You can follow on Facebook at Paranormal Exposed, on Instagram at The Paranormal Truth, or you can always shoot an email over to ParanormalExposedPodcast at gmail.com. Again, thank you all so much for tuning in, and I will catch you all next Wednesday.